Hello and welcome to a special episode of Brain Trust Live. This week on the podcast, the episode that we've been teasing for three weeks, finally in your ear holes. This is Brain Trust Live. Hey y'all, I'm Brent. I'm Lila, and you can find us on the web at www.braintrustlive.com. We are excited to finally get this interview to you. We recorded it quite some time ago. My world has sort of blown up in the last three weeks. Um, We don't need to get into that here. Uh, But we wanted to get this interview to you. Ballots are going out. uh, So you're going to want to vote for this person if you live in their district. I have a feeling. Uh, And we never actually announced who our special guest was going to be, but we're pretty excited because maybe a girl who is challenging Adam Schiff in the CD30 general election, that's our congressional district, came on and spoke to us a couple of weeks ago about the race, about um, her hopes that Adam Schiff would debate her, and about some of the issues that we're facing in CD30 and the you know, excitement and general opportunity that is available to progressives in a jungle primary situation. And we're so excited to uh, release this interview. Yeah. So I think that you're really going to love them, for starters. And also, you know, look, maybe you're looking to vote for somebody that's not Adam Schiff for once. (laughs) Yeah. And we talk about this in the interview, but I mean, it's the first time that we've had a left challenge um, to shift, at least in the general. So, you know, maybe you're thinking, oh, you know, I saw Adam Schiff in a fancy suit on MSNBC, but like, that's really all I know about him. You know, you're going to want to listen to this interview. And think differently about how you want to vote in a general election between two Democrats anyway. I mean, this is not the normal binary Democrat-Republican race we're talking about here. And so I think, you know, this interview and just the general slate of Democrat versus Democrat elections that we have going on in California gives us a chance to talk a little bit about what it means to vote in a state with jungle primaries when the general election is going to be between two Democrats. Yes. We also mentioned that ballots are going out. That means that our prop election guide is going out soon as well. We're really excited to uh, give you a look at some of the really exciting uh, props and less exciting props that are going to be on the ballot this year, as well as some of the other Democrat versus Democrat general election races that are going to be going on in Southern California. That's right. About about time to dive into some research that we've done for the last 10 election cycles on dialysis props. Because <laughs> we, we got one of those. Once again, our statewide expertise on dialysis will come in handy, as well as um, our statewide expertise on gambling, which we are soon to have because the most expensive prop in California history is no longer Prop 22. It is now Prop 26. That's one of the gambling props that you've been seeing incessant ads for. I think something like $400 million has already been spent or close to that as of October 1st. So we're looking at really putting the Prop 22 legacy to shame Um, And we'll have all of that on our ballot guide as well. And one other note before we go to the interview, we mention a candidate forum that we, um, as of a few weeks ago, hoped would happen. That candidate forum is actually happening this Wednesday between Adam Schiff and maybe a girl. So you'll actually get to see them debate. Yes. So, um, yeah, you'll you'll hear maybe a girl in this interview um, mention that the the hope of a candidate forum happening. It's happening. Um, And it's on October 12th. You can find this information on um, maybe a girl's 
Twitter, which I would highly recommend following anyway, just because it's a good follow. Uh, but it's happening on October 12th from 2 to 5.30. It's being sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Greater Los Angeles. You can stream it on the My Glendale YouTube channel, or there's a live stream uh, for the forum on the City of Glendale website. So you can find it there. Uh, all of this information is on their Twitter. Um, and there's also um, an email address to send questions to. So you have questions for either um, maybe a girl or for Adam Schiff. Um, there's a way to email those in. So that is upcoming, and uh, I highly recommend watching if you're able. And with that, I hope that you enjoy getting your ballot. Please send us an email at braintrustapproved at gmail.com if you want to be added to our candidate and prop guide list. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Maybe a Girl. We had a great time recording it. We're so excited today to have a really special guest, maybe a girl who is a candidate for Congress in our home district, CD30 in Southern California. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Tell us who you are and why you decided to run for Congress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Maybe. Um, my pronouns are she, her, they, them. And uh, I currently serve on the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council right here in Los Angeles. I'm uh, in the middle of my second term, and I also am running for Congress in this district. I'm running for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. This is my second time running for Congress. When I ran in 2020, we lost our primary by less than 1%, so we said we have to try this again. So uh, this time around, I think with name recognition and just really getting out into the uh, into the district, we've been able to do that, and we ended up winning the primary election this year. So we will be on the ballots for the general election, uh, and it's pretty historic because this is the first time that this district is going to have two Democrats on the ballots. So the district, which leans overwhelmingly Democratic, actually now ha now has a choice between a moderate, uh, longtime uh, incumbent or somebody who is more progressive, grassroots and leftist. And I think that's a pretty awesome thing. Also, it's the first time that a trans non-binary person has ever advanced to a general election for federal office. That's amazing. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and we, you know, we've lived in this district for a long time, dating back to when Schiff was redistricted to be our congressperson, essentially, and have sort of long wished, especially when California went to this jungle primary system, that we could have a progressive challenger to Schiff. Because, you know, as you mentioned, this, this district is like heavily Democratic. Heavily. It contains West Hollywood. <laughs> Um, and, you know, among other sort of, you know, democratic enclaves here. So, you know, it's really exciting to actually have that choice for the first time. I'm curious, why do you think that you would be better for this district than Adam Schiff? I think that I'm more connected to the district, to somebody who who really lives and, um, you know, experiences my life in the district. And I think is also somebody who uh, experiences life more similar to the typical person who lives in this district versus, you know, somebody who has been in office for over 20 years, somebody who's a multimillionaire, somebody who doesn't even really live in the district, mostly lives in Washington, D.C. And I think that, you know, personally, I'm a, I'm a renter. I am working class. I work. I still work part time, um, you know, during the campaign. I work at a restaurant a few days a week to make ends meet. And, you know, that's an experience that a lot of people in my district know about, you know, uh, worrying about how to pay rent and how to get through the pandemic. You know, these are issues that I think are uh, very relative to working class people and families in the district. And I think that current representation is a little bit out of touch at this point. You know, uh, I've lived in the district now for almost 10 years and quality of life has gotten worse in the district, um, especially for people who are already 
on the edge. Um, you know, a huge issue right now in Los Angeles is homelessness. And, you know, homelessness in my district has increased by more than 30% in certain parts of the district since 2018. And I think unless you are somebody who knows what it's like to be a renter, knows what it's like to uh, be a struggling working class member of the community, I think one might be a little bit out of touch. What are the main platform pieces that you're running on? Yeah, so I like to describe my uh, my platform as an intersectional humanitarian platform, uh, mostly involving a lot of social issues which highly overlap. So, you know, things like universal health care, housing for all, education for all, environmental justice, racial justice, LGBTQIA rights, reproductive rights, uh, gun control, alleviating homelessness, staying out of war. A lot of these issues have a lot of overlap, especially, you know, some of the social and economic issues. Um, you know, one of the things that has been a challenge for my campaign is really differentiating myself um, from the incumbents, because I think a lot of folks uh, think that uh, the incumbent is progressive. They think Adam Schiff is progressive, especially yeah. because of his his work on the impeachment and the January 6th committee. Uh, thing is, you know, you can be progressive in certain ways um, and very not progressive in other ways. And personally, in my opinion, I think to be anti-Trump is about the lowest bar um, that we can consider uh, if you're any sort of, you know, any part of the left party. Um, so, yeah, so I think that, uh, um, you know, those are those are issues that are, um, you know, important to the district is, you know, having somebody who's actually a leftist and, you um, you know, Schiff, he says that he supports Medicare for all, but he also owns stocks and pharmaceuticals. Uh, you know, he says that he is interested in environmental justice, but he votes for a nearly trillion dollar defense budget every year, you know, giving money to one of the largest institutional polluters on the earth. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of conflict between what he says and what people think about him versus his actual voting record. Yeah, I think people are always surprised when I'm like, well, he was like one of the original blue dog Democrats. I mean, you know, right? like, this, is a, this is a man who is like a, a moderate and used to be really proud to say so. You know, I mean, he, he sort of moved a little bit when he got redistricted, you know, I think in a sort of self-serving way. But like and there's also, you know, I think there's a huge difference between saying that you support Medicare for all. And knowing that you're a probably never going to have to vote for it, and b <laughs> and b really fighting for it, you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. he's not he's not a voice on the issue. So it's one thing to say I'm a co-sponsor of Medicare for All, and it's another to sort of like be in Congress drafting plans to vote on it. Exactly, you know, demanding that it comes to the floor, and that's something that I haven't seen from my representative. Um, and you know, you really hit it on the nose when you said you know one of the one of the OG Blue Dog Democrats, and you know he is very. Um, He's very police heavy. He's very military heavy. You know, and you can just tell that by looking at who his donors are. You know, his donors are, you know, he's accepted, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars from weapons manufacturers and defense contractors. So it really should come as no surprise that every year he then goes and votes in their interest for a nearly trillion dollar defense budget. It's kind of this revolving door of, you know, lobbyists, you know, contributing to Congress people who then vote a certain way on legislation and then it repeats on an annual basis ultimately ensuring that those, you know, who are well-funded stay in office. You know, one of the things about our campaign, we are entirely grassroots, corporate-free. We don't take any sort of corporate PAC money. And so it has been difficult for us to get out the message when we, you know, haven't raised $15 million like the incumbents. But again, you take a look at where a lot of that money is coming from, and it's coming from a lot of corporate interests. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we talk a lot on this podcast about how a big part of politics and specifically electoral politics is performative. And that's in part because I'm a healthcare advocate. So I've spent a lot of time on the Hill and I understand like sort of there's a performance piece of just being involved in politics of being an advocate. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you see drag performance as an advantage to you, how you use your sort of like performance abilities and performance background as an asset to you on the campaign and also what kind of asset that would be if you were on the Hill. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, thinking about it, I don't think it's it's false at all to say that there is, you know, a theatrical element to uh, to the way that our government operates. And I don't I don't know if that's I don't think that's necessarily a, a good or a bad thing. I'm sure it's it's a little bit right. of both. Um, but, you know, I think you do have to be, you know, compelling in your nature to, first of all, you know, garner the interest of your colleagues, but also to garner the interest of your constituents in actually paying attention to what you're doing and trying to get them to understand the realities of the power that they hold. And, you know, not just in terms of electing people, but really helping to shape and influence policy. And um, so I think that's, you know, something that is, you know, I see in the entertainment world all the, all the time, you know, it's not that crazy to have somebody come from the drag world and go into the political world, I think, especially from a, a skills point of view, you know, uh, understanding how to speak to people you don't know, um, speaking in front of a large crowd, you know, it's, there is definitely a, a theatrical performative element to that. And I know when we, I, I feel like the word perf performative is a little bit pejorative lately, but, you know, you do have to sort of play it up, I guess, in a way, um, to get people interested. Sure. A campaign is essentially just like a giant meet and greet, I guess, yeah. probably, right? <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's something I feel like I talk about that in my book quite a bit because it's I was very surprised to find that when I was doing advocacy work where I was like, oh, so much of this relies on my communication skills and communication skills are performance skills. And so it it's not as it's not just that you have to be like really good on policy. You have to be really good on policy, of course. But like there's this piece of it that is not morally good or bad that just is part of, you know, public communications in any field and is relevant in Washington, just as it is in Hollywood, in yeah. anywhere, you know, being able to connect with people, being able to, you know, speak their language and, you know, try to understand where they're coming from and their experience. Uh, for me, it's also been a really great tool because I, I perform on a weekly basis to an entirely different crowd every week. And most of those people are folks that live in my district. And so, you know, I don't think I think we need to get past this idea uh, that a politician needs to, you know, have a certain background or a certain amount of experience, because I think life experience is especially something that has not been seen enough uh, in, you know, our federal government. And so, um, I think that, yeah, just uh, being able to speak to a whole new crowd of people every week has been a very great tool. And, you know, it's helped, helped our campaign to get the word out a little bit more. And, you know, also, it's okay to be a drag queen and be in politics. <laughs> yes. Right. Hello. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, you know, you sort of hit on this, you know, just sort of like being somebody who isn't your, the typical person to be in Congress. I'm curious where you see yourself fitting in? Do you do you see yourself with the squad? Do you see yourself working across the aisle? Do you see yourself as confrontational? Do you like where, you know, like, let's say you win, what's what's your what's your game on the hill? That's a great question. Um, you know, I admire um, uh, everyone on the squad. I think that, you know, my value system most closely aligns with their value system and the goals that they want to achieve. Um, I don't necessarily like the idea of just immediately being lumped into a click. Um, sure. 
but uh, I do think that, you know, my voting record will very similarly match theirs. Um, I think I'll actually, you know, sort of um, govern in the same way that I, you know, I behave and govern on my my local position. Um, I think when folks elected me to uh, my local council, you know, I think there was this sort of a big deal because, oh, first drag queen ever elected to a public office. And it's like, well, what what are we expecting? What are we expecting? And the thing is, what I ended up doing is I ended up just doing my job that I was elected for. And so I think people are expecting like this big show um, sometimes, but I really, I'm here to serve my community. That's what I was elected for. You know, I have my own shows that I do, you know, for my, uh, you know, drag interest, but you know, being elected locally, that's a very important thing that I take seriously. And, you know, folks are folks didn't reelect me because I'm a drag queen. They didn't reelect me because I'm a trans person. They reelected me because I'm doing my job well and I'm doing what they elected me to do. And that's exactly what I will do when I'm elected to Congress. Um, you know, I don't want to go in and make this big scene and make it all about me. And I think that's what a lot of people envision when they think of, oh, drag queen being elected to Congress. You know, I always also like to s describe it like this. Drag is what I do, but trans is who I am. I'm more so interested in representing trans issues uh, in addition to the issues of so many intersectional marginalized communities when I'm elected. That's my goal of why I want to be elected. And, you know, I think it's important to have a, a very visibly queer person in office. You know, I don't, I, I think uh, this is something that a lot of queer people can relate to you know, when you're kind of coming into yourself, you start to code switch a little bit and you try to, you know, fit in. And I'm past that. I'm <laughs> I'm here. I'm loud. I'm queer. I'm myself. And I want to show people that that's who they deserve to be as well. And you shouldn't be limited in your choices of what you can do or your place in society um, just because of, you know, factors like that. And Chris, I want to talk a little bit about this is your second challenge to shift, as we yeah. mentioned. Um, I want to talk a little bit for a second about jungle primaries and the strategy piece of running in a jungle primary. It's a little different than running in a traditional party primary. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what you learned from your first run that you're carrying forward. You know, this has been a more successful run this in, in this cycle. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that you learned a lot from that first run. But also, you know, this is a steep challenge. Schiff uh, is very entrenched. He has a lot of money. He has a lot of visibility. In the event that those obstacles are too great to overcome, what are the benefits to having launched this campaign from the left anyway? What do you see as the advantage of this system that you're running in right now? And, you know, how, how are you planning to operate within it? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, first of all, um, I, I love the the open primary system that we have here in California. I think it's very democratic. I think it allows for anybody to actually have a fair chance of being elected. And, you know, if I was in a state where, you know, I was fighting for the Democratic nomination against Schiff, I probably would not have run because of his vast popularity, his broad popularity amongst the Democratic Party. But I will say that, you know, he is broadly popular, but that doesn't mean that he's broadly popular in the district that is going to be that elects him year in year out. You know, Schiff has never had to worry about his seats until until I challenged him because every every other year when it comes after the primary, the normal results are such that he is then up against a Republican. And when we are in a district that votes over seventy percent Democratic, there's just no way 
numbers wise that a Republican will win unless literally every Democrat is sick on election day. <laughs> um, but they also take care of that because now you can mail in your votes. You can drop I was off. Say, you can be sick. You know? you, they'd have to be months exactly. and months of illness. <laughs> so um, I think it's a, a wonderful system that we have. I, I definitely am more of a fan of things like ranked uh, choice voting, but that's a different topic. But um, I, I just, I was actually surprised that nobody had decided to ever challenge Schiff, especially as you mentioned earlier, he has sort of become a little more progressive, a little bit more left of center since he has been in the public spotlights. Um, so I was surprised that nobody had ever challenged him. And sometimes you have to be the person to step up to the plate. I will say I actually was really inspired by uh, AOC's run in New York. You know, she challenged somebody who uh, is similar to uh, the role that Adam Schiff plays in my district. And, you know, she beat all the odds and she and she won. And it's not really an impossible thing. And I I wouldn't be running if I didn't think we actually had a chance of winning. For us, it does come down to um, you know money, and it takes a lot of money to run for Congress to get the word out there. But I'm confident that if people know about our campaign and know about the values, the people power values that we stand for, that they'll vote for us. And so I do think that uh, one of the positives of this campaign, even if we don't advance, even if we don't wane, is that I have noticed that his the things he's discussing and his ideas are pushing left. And I know that he wouldn't have to do that if he didn't have somebody challenging him from the left. You know, the other thing is, I uh, believe it or not, I've had so many people who wonder how I even have the audacity, the nerve to run against Adam Schiff because they think that he's some sort of idol. And the thing is, I actually helped to preserve the Democratic Party in a way because I prevented a Republican from being on the general ballot. So I made it such that right. There is no way a Republican is going to win in this district. The funny thing about that, now that I think about it, is so a lot of the fundraising that Schiff has been doing ever since uh, we won the primary is he's, he's been a little bit dirty in his efforts, in his text messages, his emails. He's constantly saying to people, uh, please donate to our campaign so that we can keep our Democratic majority. GOP, MAGA GOP is trying to uh, you know make me lose my seats. And the thing is, he is being completely... Uh, dishonest and not at all transparent about the fact that he's not running against anybody in the GOP. He's running against a leftist Democrat. And I think that that actually scares him. This is the first time that his job is actually in jeopardy. And so even if we don't win, I think that it's pushing policies left. It's showing other people that they can do it. And it's also opening doors for trans people. That's something we talk about so much on this podcast, because I think so often people either give up on seats with entrenched representation or don't sort of think to challenge people from the perspective of like where the voters are in that district. And it's like, that's what pulls the conversation in the direction of the voters. It seems it's such exactly. a, it's, a, it's such an important part of creating a, a representative dynamic in the district. Yeah, absolutely. Is there going to be a debate? Are you pushing for a debate? We have been pushing for a debate since 2019. I'm sure. uh, in our first campaign, we emailed his office multiple times, you know, requesting a debate, even a conversation. We got radio silence. Uh, the same thing happened this campaign. Um, we reached out, heard nothing. I was actually shocked that uh, a, a while back we um, were reached out to by an organization that said, hey, we're interested in organizing a debate between uh, you and Adam Schiff, uh, or more like a candidate forum. Um, and so they told us that the only way that it would go forth is if both candidates agree, we agreed. 
And then they got back to us a little while later with a date. So I'll be at the debates. I don't know if Schiff is going to be at the debates, but either way, I'm going to be at the debate for the League of Women's Voters on October 12th at Glendale City Council Chambers. So I challenge him to show up. I would love to have a conversation with him. How do we create a viral sensation around this so that we can make sure he shows up? He has to. He has to. If there's one thing I've learned, actually, in this primary cycle, because the district that my parents live in in New York City had a very competitive primary between two committee chairs. They had a debate and it was like the most chaotic thing I've ever witnessed in my entire life because neither of them had ever had to debate anyone. They had been running in these seats where they had been just like reelected for the last 20 years without much of a challenge until very recently in one of the seats. But because of that, they had no practice debating. So it was actually like pure mayhem. Um, so I, yes. So I feel like that we got to we got to make him show up, you guys. We got to figure. I hope out. so. And I'm not hoping for mayhem. I hope there's no mayhem. Right. Um, no mayhem free. Mayhem free. But I legitimately want to have a conversation with him because I have so many questions that I want to ask him about his representation and why he's not doing this, why he's not doing that, and you know the thing is, I I recognize that um, you know being a a member of the House of Representatives, you are a federal representative and national representative for your district, but you also have to have a connection to the people in your district. You're, they're not just numbers that you're representing on the other side of the nation. You really have to have a connection with your people and and figure out what are the problems? What are the issues? How can we help? And, you know, somebody that's lived in the district for the past 10 years, <clears throat> I've just seen things get worse and worse. And I, I have questions that I want to ask him about, about concerning that. And, you know, and I, I mean it in a completely respectful way. I actually think that was one of the really interesting things about when AOC first got elected, she got asked, like, what is your biggest priority coming into office? And she said, constituent services. That, yeah. That's it. <laughs> so. And that shouldn't be a, a crazy idea. And I recognize that's <clears throat> not the only element of the job role. But, you know, any sort of job is not just one specific line item of here's your job description. But constituent services and paying attention to your district and making quality of life better, especially for the marginalized folks in your district, is paramount to my campaign. And it hasn't been something that I've discovered with his campaign, you know, even since before I was running. Um, you know, I didn't really know who he was. I probably voted for him <laughs> before. Uh, before really starting to pay attention to, you know, because it's like, okay, well, Democrat, incumbent, okay, check mark. But I'm excited to, you know, let the folks in my district have have a choice this time. Totally. Yeah, I think that's that is how he's getting reelected <laughs> in, in most instances. Yes. Or that people have seen him on TV talking about Trump, which isn't to say that that's not important. But to your point, it's like, you know, the, the district has other needs as to whether, you know, Donald Trump is impeached. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we mentioned that we are sort of, you know, we're a we're a leftist podcast. We sometimes can get a little wonky sometimes. So we have some questions for you. They're hypotheticals, so feel free to, <laughs> okay. you know, tell us <laughs> to buzz off if you want. But we just okay. have some we just have some questions okay, for you. Like, you win. Are you voting for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House? You know, probably not. Um, I I think one of my one of my conditions for voting for Nancy would be bringing Medicare for all to the floor. And you know, I say that because Pelosi. One of the things I want to know from her is why did she come in as a hard supporter of Medicare for all in the early 1990s? She wanted it to go to the floor in the early 90s. Now she has the power to do that. She is the Speaker of the House and refuses to let it hit the floor. 
Um, and especially that's one of the issues that's actually actually bipartisan. Like that's one of the issues where it crosses over the line where, you know, Medicare for all pulls around, I think, around 60 percent. There's no reason that we shouldn't be passing legislation like that. So um, unless she agrees to bring it to the floor to no for me. All right. So we've got to we've got to force the vote candidate. I'm into it. Love it. I'm into it. Okay, I'm in. Um, uh, what about CPC chair? Progressive caucus chair, do you have uh, do you have anybody that you have an eye on? Do you have anybody that you would want to support for that role? Jayapal has taken some hits uh, right. <laughs> this last year, so I'm, I'm curious about Jayapal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I feel like uh, I do appreciate uh, the squad and a lot of the folks on the Progressive caucus. Um, certainly more than uh, a vast majority of the folks who are voting in the chambers. Um, does that mean I'm going to, you know, agree with every single thing they do? No. Um, but it is one of those things where I'm like, okay, let's, we got to work with what we're working with right now. So, but I would love to see somebody like, you know, like Cory Bush or AOC or like somebody, you know, one of the, you know, newer, younger, fresher faces um, step in for that, for that role. So it seems like everybody who's running for Congress in this cycle is being asked whether they would support Joe Biden running again in 2024. If you're in the House, you're a sitting member of Congress. Do you support the sitting president in his reelection? You know, it's tough. It's tough. I um, I've been a firm believer of let's let's always make this the last time we're voting blue, no matter who. Um, you know, Biden was literally my last choice out of all of the primary candidates in in 2020. I'm still I do, I still don't know how it became him. I'm obviously I'm glad that it wasn't Trump. Um, you know, this really is one of the lesser of two evil situations. Um, I think it's one of those things we're going to have to wait and see how things are going. Uh, I would I would absolutely support somebody else challenging Joe Biden. I think it depends on who it is. You know, I would support somebody like uh, Marianne Williamson. I would support somebody like AOC. Um, would I be thrilled about somebody like Gavin Newsom? No. Um, there's a few candidates that I would support over Biden. And there might even be some candidates where I'm like, well, let me at least hear what they have to say. But I do think that your vote is important. I think we need to get past this era of, well, you have to vote blue. Otherwise, we're losing our democracy tomorrow. Because I think that's the way that they really control the narrative and latch onto that power of the duopoly. It's like, well, we you know you have to vote something that's just kind of in the middle, maybe a little to the left, because it's a whole lot better than what's on the other side. And I think that there's enough people who don't want what's on the other side to allow it to happen. And I think we need to be um, less afraid of wasting our votes and um, really using our, our vote voting tools as a as a power, you know, using that to to control the narrative as the people rather than letting the duopoly control the narrative of the people. So long story short, uh, it depends on the circumstances. If it's just Biden versus DeSantis, then yeah, I'm going to support Biden. Uh, if it's, you know, somebody trying to challenge Biden, I am absolutely open to that. Hello, I'm. That's what I'm doing right now. You know, <laughs> right. The beauty of the jungle primary coming out of the jungle primary system. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, with that in mind, though, actually, what are you know? We've seen the Democrats sort of punt on some issues that I think you know are pretty foundational to really all of our quality of lives. Things like the marriage equality vote, but then also the kind of lack of action after the Dobbs ruling. 
what are your what do you what do you think about them punting on marriage equality what do you think they should have done in response to the Dobbs ruling like strategically what do you wish was happening right now yeah I think I I'm kind of just overall annoyed with just uh everything that's going on in national politics right now I think you know one of the things that bothers me is you know we are at the halfway mark of this current administration and we're only just now starting to see some sort of bills with a little bit of substance moving through not even ideal bills like reconciliation bills that are like okay there's some good in here definitely some bad as well but i think it's interesting to see that um the administration is taking so many sudden moves before the midterms and i think that it's kind of this ploy to show voters that hey you know look we're doing the job you elected us to do what they're actually trying to do is get reelected, and um you know, when it comes to uh, gay marriage, it, it really bothers me that that queer people, that folks in the LGBTQIA community right now, we're literal pawns. We're we are pawns in a greater political discourse that we actually don't even have much of a say in that conversation. I think there's what about 10 queer people in Congress right now. There's never been a trans person in Congress, yet we have federal federal legislation being introduced uh, that is attacking queer rights, more specifically trans rights. And, you know, we're not asking for anything special. We are asking to use the bathroom. We are asking to play sports, to use the locker room that aligns with our identities. And so, you know, that was actually even one of the reasons that I, I wanted to run was because I, I felt that, you know, even though when I decided to run, there hadn't yet been the sort of influx of this legislation yet, but I, I was starting to notice it on the state level. And I said, well, it, it is really important to have, you know, a, a very outspoken queer trans representative on a federal level, you know, advocating for queer and trans people when, you know, there are, you know, dozens of legislatures across the United States that are introducing and passing anti-queer legislation. You know, there's been, I think, around 300 anti-queer bills this year alone, and we're only, you know, three quarters of the way through it. So, um, so anyways, long story short, I think that uh, I'm disappointed that queer people are being used as pawns. I think a lot of people are being used as pawns right now, not just queer people, but in this specific conversation. And um, I think that more needs to be done during any sort of administration throughout the whole admit throughout the whole term, rather than just at the end when people are paying attention to the election cycles. I think it's kind of a joke. Um, Agreed. <laughs> I have one final question for you that is maybe a completely off the wall question, which is this is really one of the first cycles where I know at the state and local level, we're seeing a few trans candidates kind of getting some visibility at the state, you know, in, for local office. I'm wondering if there's been any effort to coordinate or any effort to kind of like create a community that sort of serves the same function as, you know, there are groups like Emerge that help women run for office. For queer candidates, sort of broadly, there are some groups like Equality California, or, you know, groups that help queer candidates get onto the ballot. Has there been any sort of, are there, are there any groups that are doing that for trans candidates? And specifically because we're in a time where trans issues are so visible and, and trans rights are so under attack, is there any kind of organizing force that's helping bring people who can really represent lived perspectives on these issues? You know, uh, from what I, I know, it's it's still mostly, rather than specifically trans, it's still mostly broadly queer, broadly LGBTQIA, yeah. you know, um, organizations like the Victory Institute are, you know, helping to, you know, prepare and train candidates to run and organizations like that. But 
Um, you know, I am familiar with some of the uh, state legislature candidates who are trans who have recently been elected, like Sarah McBride and Danica Rome. And I've been, you know, I've I follow them. I'm always kind of hoping for the follow back. I haven't gotten them yet, um, but I would love to, you know, pick their brains about what their experience has been like. Um, I have uh, I did a, a joint um, campaign event with a uh, another non-binary candidate who's running for a state seat in Iowa. Um, their name is Alejandro. We did a, a really fun uh, event called Dungeons and Drag. Um, so it's kind of like Dungeons and Dragon, but all drag characters and that was super fun. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, I think the fact of the matter is there just aren't really enough of us running yet to really form this you know big coalition that we need um that's something that i would love to see in the future and you know you have me you've got the wheels in my head turning um but as it stands i think uh you know it's mostly broadly lgbtqia organizations at this point i'm gonna have to look into that uh candidate from iowa you mentioned because that's where, that's where yeah, I'm brent's from, from iowa <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> born and raised yeah <laughs> Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we did not ask you about? You know, I guess, you know, just sort of, you know, people always ask why, you know, why am I running against Schiff? I think I, I spoke about that briefly. It's it's not even that he's not just, that he's not left enough for me. It, it goes beyond that. You know, somebody uh, as as a local locally elected politician in my community, I stand for my voting record. And as a politician, you are only as good as your voting record. And that is a big part of the reason why I'm challenging Adam Schiff is because I've dug into his voting record and I've discovered a lot of things that that I think are very much in opposition to my value system and to the value system of the folks that are living in the district. And so, you know, that's really why I'm running is to, you know, challenge this sort of um, establishment and, and really make a, a, a statement about the power of people and what we can achieve together. Um, you know, you had mentioned earlier about, you know, how he's been moderate for a while. A lot of people don't know, but when he was a California state senator in the late 90s, he not only voted for, but he authored a number of bills that increase incarceration in California, specifically amongst juveniles. And I think that that's despicable. I think it's awful. I think that's not representative of the future that I want to see. You know, and then I take a look at his voting record when it comes to war issues. You know, he voted for the war in Iraq, Afghanistan. He voted for the Patriot Patriot Act. He voted to support the Saudi invasion of Yemen, you know, which is still one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. And, you know, these are things that I don't think politicians should get a pass for. When you are making votes that directly impact and harm and end the lives of other people, specifically, you know, black, brown, indigenous people of color, I think that that's something that really needs to be considered. And that goes not just from a foreign policy point of view, but also from a domestic point of view when I talk about homelessness and you look at the communities that are affected by homelessness. And once again, they are black, brown, indigenous people of color and also queer people, trans people. These are the people that are, you know, experiencing these things. And when we have politicians that are, you know, the representative of that district and things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse over the years why do we continue to re-elect these people why are do we not elect somebody else somebody who actually wants to address those issues so i guess that's all that i wanted to end with tell everyone how they can find your campaign online what they can do to support it what they can do to chip in 
Yeah, we, you know, first of all, I, I hate asking for money. I know, I know we're all broke, but we, uh, we could definitely use some, some money. We raised, you know, we won our primary election with uh, about $22,000. We spent about a dollar per vote versus $15 million and we've made it this far. So if folks would just chip in, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, it really adds up so we can get a billboard, you know, get some more canvassers out there. Uh, we also need volunteers if anybody's local um, or even if you're not local, we do virtual phone banking. So you can find us at maybeagirlforcongress.org. That's M-A-E-B-E-A-G-I-R-L-F-O-R congress.org. You can also find us on Twitter at maybe underscore a underscore girl or um, on Instagram at maybe for Congress. Well, thank you so much. This was so fun. We wish you all the luck. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, I also really hope to see that uh, candidate forum or debate with yes. you and Chef. Same, Let's same. make it happen. Let's it's going to happen. happen either way. The right. question is, you'll be there. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. I'll see you in the district.